Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. So yes, I'm going to talk about the grand organ of sympathy, a phrase that was used on more than one occasion to talk about the stomach and the digestion in general. I should say that I'll be using the word stomach rather vaguely because in the 18th century in particular, it was used very vaguely, often to refer to digestion in, in general. So if it seems vague, that's because I'm following contemporary um, style at that point. Um, this is part, I should say, of a project, a larger project on fashionable diseases in Georgian Britain, uh, which involves me and several other people, uh, uh, people at Newcastle. Um, it's very important to be careful with the word fashionable in when you're talking about um, medical conditions, especially if you start making comparisons between the Georgian era and contemporary medical conditions that are associated with um, being a member of a social elite, being particularly clever, being particularly rich. I'm sure you can all think of conditions that are much more common in, say, rich pe- among rich people in California than they are amongst the poor people of, I don't know, East End of Glasgow, you know, gluten being gluten intolerant, long list, ADHD, all these things. And if you suggest that they're quote-unquote fashionable, uh, people can get very upset and think that you're suggesting that their conditions are imaginary or fake or just bogus. Um, and that's not at all what I want to, to suggest. Very often the symptoms, one way or another, are experiences entirely real, even if we might be somewhat sceptical about how they're understood. But in any case, we're talking really about Conditions that in the Georgian period were associated with wealth, style, being particularly sensitive, being poetic, for example. So gout, a very famous picture by Thomas Rowlandson here of the gout, is a very famous example of a disease which in the Georgian period was associated with being, in particular being a, a rich, especially a rich man. Uh, nervousness, of course, was associated with sensitivity in all sorts of ways. Uh, consumption, there's the famous um, cliché of the, of the poet dying of consumption. We're also interested in the idea of fashionable diagnoses, uh, in particular with um, stomach complaints. Every, even every few years and throughout the Georgian period, there was a new diagnosis that would come along. You have a, essentially a medical marketplace in many ways, so you have doctors in, inventing new terms and trying to redefine everything in the context of their own diagnosis. Um, of course, especially towards the end of the Georgian period, you start to get... Um, the influence of Paris medicine and local pathology and a much more detailed understanding of the um, digestive system. And that's the time, for example, when the word hypochondria starts to take on its modern meaning um, of, so to speak, an imaginary illness. Um, for, for most of the period I'm talking about here, hypochondria was still understood as uh, essentially a, um, a disease of the bowels that would affect the mind in all sorts of ways. Uh, because of these constantly shifting um, diagnoses and because of the associations with the elite, there's always a debate going on at the same time about whether these conditions in general are fake or imaginary, just like there is now a lot of skepticism. And that's often related to a broader critique of the social elite, especially a middle-class critique of aristocratic vice. That is to say that you know um, the conditions which certain people might like to associate with themselves because of their links to wealth and power and um, style, other people see as a, an example of, of cultural decay. Uh, and in terms of uh, digestion, um, one of my main arguments is really that digestion is, I would say, that at the very center of this debate. And um, 
fashionable disease, at least as common as gout, uh, at least as common as nerves in its own right. Uh, the links to gluttony, a famous picture by Gilray of voluptuary under the horrors of digestion, showing the Prince Regent. Um, with the relationship between gluttony and wealth and vice made it perfect for, that, for this combination of social critique and, um, so to speak, posing and enjoying your symptom, that kind of strange experience. So just in its own terms. On the other hand, it's also the stomach is directly related to all those other fashionable diseases, almost all of them. Um, gout, there's a, the flying gout, and it was regarded as the most dangerous when flying gout reached the stomach. It would fly around your body, and if it got to the stomach, lots of people, even, even lay observers, would say, well, I have the flying gout, but luckily it hasn't reached my stomach. Uh, the relationship between eating and gout was understood in all sorts of ways in general, and it's certainly true. Um, the link to the mind, I would say, though, is extremely important. That's one of the main things that we're talking about today. The, the link between um, st stomach complaints and emotional and mental states made it very easy to link those um, um, emotional and mental states with moral causes, emotions, and all sorts of personal vices, being incredibly intelligent, for example. Uh, thinking too hard, you know, what effect does that have on the stomach? Being especially sensitive, and so forth. Being just um, a wicked person, what effect does that have? And because of that, the guts are also central to most of the discussion of nervous disease in the 18th century. Um, um, Cheney's English Malady, George Cheney's very famous 1733 book, The English Malady, is often cited, especially in books about 19th century psychiatry, as, as almost the beginning of psychological medicine. In fact, almost all of it is about, the, about digestion, about food, about regimen, what, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat. Cheney himself was famously, I can't remember how many stone, like 20 stone, absolutely enormous, and went on a very strict diet. And it's all about that in many ways. So I would say, yes, the, the digestion is really the center of... Um, conceptions of selfhood as well, and, and really to that extent, but also therefore uh, to fashionable disease. So the question about whether they're fashionable, there are all sorts of examples that I could give for this, but I'll give maybe just a couple. Uh, William Ward's Comments and Corpulency by uh, the physician William Ward, 1829, wrote that fashion, which holds an undivided empire over the frivolous concerns of life, extends its influence even to the healing art. Thus you find fashionable complaints, fashionable remedies, fashionable seats of disease, and fashionable plans of treatment. Half a century ago, nervous complaints of the temps. These were superseded by liver complaints, and these again have yielded to the palm, yielded the palm to stomach complaints. Duodenal complaints are beginning to be talked of in London, while the hypochondriacs of Bath have the fashionable localities, so that at present, the seat of alimentary complaints depends on the accidental circumstance of the patient's residence. And as he said in the end, in fact, the stomach is, the stomach is charged nowadays with one half of the complaints of mankind, including mental complaints. I missed out a big chunk about the seat of insanity, he was saying, in, 18, in 1829, was generally seen to be in the stomach. Um, almost a century earlier than that, um, there was an article, Consolatory Advice to the Ladies on Their Recess with the Parliament from the Gentleman's Magazine, which suggested that ladies should add pains in the stomach to the list of dissipations that could get them a free trip to Bath. Because the colic, I quote, in the stomach, I mean, is a clean, genteel distemper, and by no means below women of the first condition, at the added advantage that its diagnostics are neither visible nor certain, it is pleadable against husbands, neighbours and relations without any possibility of its being traversed. That is to say, on the one hand, you have already everything here in 1733. On the one hand, stomach conditions 
are fashionable. They are associated with being with gentility. On the other hand, they're incredibly easy to fake. The suggestion is so. The suggestion is also this happens a great deal. Um, one thing that's oops, one thing that's clear though, I think, is that the fashionability, quote unquote, of all of the of any condition in the Georgian period, just like today, is always something that's rather contested and complicated. For every example you can find of someone saying that stomach conditions are regarded as uh, rather superior and rather something that people might even want to have in a perverse kind of way, you find people saying exactly the opposite. Uh, for example, in terms of the stomach, Lord Byron wrote in 1814 that alternate extremes of excess and abstinence have utterly destroyed, oh, unsentimental word, my stomach. And as Lady Oxford used seriously to say, a broken heart means nothing but bad digestion. I'm one day in high health and next on fire on ice. In short, I shall turn hypochondriacal. And he means essentially that with the stomach, not just uh, not saying that he's becoming, having imaginary diseases. And Thomas Carlyle, writing um, in the 1830s, said that a malady of the soul one can embellish and dignify a little by enduring, but dyspepsia, the ugly, ragged troll, carries with it the indelible stamp of nastiness and lowness. Do what we may, it seems to pollute the very sanctuary of our being. It renders our suffering at once complete and contemptible. So it's always complicated, uh, but nevertheless a pretty strong debate on stomach diseases as both fashionable diagnoses and being associated with the elite continues throughout the period. Uh, part of the reason is, of course, that um, it was associated with being rich, with stuffing your, with your face, with the glamour and also the vice of the super-rich, so to speak. Of course, I'm sure many of you are aware, in the Georgian period, it's almost universally believed that the rich die young and the working poor have healthy lives. Just to give one example of really thousands, James Mackenzie's History of Health in 1765, advocated exercise and gentle physics, physic for the overfed rich, but said that the poor have great advantages over the rich with respect to health and long life, as the narrowness of their circumstances prompts them to labor and withdraws uh, all temptations to luxury. I could, yeah, as I said, I could quote a million examples of that. Uh, there was one, however, big uh, drawback with this kind of gluttony, uh, and very unfashionable one. I found three different cases of uh, serious doctors um, giving examples of s spontaneous human combustion caused by uh, <coughs> flatulence brought on by um, eating overeating. James McKittrick Adair, who wrote a very famous essay on fashionable diseases, wrote in another book his philosophical and medical sketch of the natural history of human body and mind that in a woman dissected by Rausch, the famous Dutch um, anatomist, a vapor issuing from the stomach caught fire when a candle was brought near to it. In dram drinkers, the breath is said to take fire sometimes, and an Italian countess is said to have been totally consumed, one hand accepted, in consequence of drinking inordinately of spirit of wine. Combined with electric fluid in the bodies, gastric vapor led to the death of another Italian lady and consumed a considerable part of her body to ashes. William Wadd, who I mentioned at the, at the beginning, gives another example of a French lady whose fat caught fire. Not altogether fashionable. So I'll just give a couple of examples of um, the relationship between gluttony and wealth. This is from, I don't know if you know this, Book. Thomas Rowlandson and uh, a writer called William Combe wrote a book called The English Dance of Death in 1816. Uh, two volumes, and there are all these extraordinary images showing uh, death as a skeleton, uh, attending various meetings and uh, situations in which uh, the vice of 1816, Britain, was causing death. 
including the waltz. There's a whole one on the waltz of it was the waltz of death. That's my favourite one. Uh, but this is just one example of from the English dance of death of gluttony of a bunch of of people eating and drinking, pulling wine bottles, as you see there, and death is the inevitable accompaniment to this kind of high living. Um, you also get things like, the, this is the physician's friend from the year before. The idea, this is the uh, physician um, saying that he always pops in to say thank you to the, as the French cook, because as far as he was concerned, it was the, it was the French cooks of London that were really keeping physicians in business. Lots of things about... Um, you know, hangovers, uh, killing more than the sword, things like that. Um, there is, however, some debate about this, but I think you can make an argument that after 1800 or so, you start to get a shift away from the association of gluttony with just the elite, and you start to get the idea that um, the uh, stomach complaints of various kinds uh, could also be associated with the middling sort, with business people. Uh, so Thomas Trotter, almost everybody I'm going to quote is Scottish, but that's not out of uh, patriotic fervor or something. It um, reflects the nature of the subject. Uh, Thomas Trotter, in his book, The View of the Nervous Temperament, 1807, suggested that the lifestyle of men of business impedes the functions of the stomach uh, and gives a long explanation of how that would work. So it's, for Cheney, he's really talking about the idle rich, the English malady something for the idle rich. But with Trotter already, we've got something a bit like the executive ulcer, which I remember even when I was young was quite a big deal and it sort of disappeared in a puff of smoke in some ways. Um, on a slightly different note, James Johnson, who was the personal physician to William IV, wrote in his essay on the morbid sensibility of the stomach and bowels in 1831 that the cl this class of stomach and bowel complaints knocks at the door of every gradation of society from the monarch in his splendid palace down to the squalid inhabitant of St. Giles or Saffron Hill, the worst slums in London, whose exterior exhales the effluvium of filth and interior that of inebriation, inebriating portations. Um, there's not much evidence that the, the poor are drinking more than the rich. So he's suggesting not that it's something for the middling sort, that it affects everybody. And that's, I think, one reason why these stomach complaints actually go out of fashion. The associations with the idle rich become much weaker, and it becomes associated with the kind of middling class or uh, with everybody. Um, as I said at the beginning, one of the principal reasons why the stomach complaints become associated, I would say, with uh, fashionability in various ways is relationship with the mind, with emotions, and so forth. Um, and this is a very complicated subject. Um, most of the historiography has suggested that by the Georgian period, the medical consensus is that it, people favor a, physicians favored a somatic explanation, that is to say, they believed that there were physical, co uh, physical causes in the, in the digestion that would affect the mind, that it would go, so to speak, in this direction. Um, and that certainly reflects a very ancient tradition in some ways, the hypochondriasis, um, be hypochondriasis, big one, um, and the idea of vapors, writing for the hypochondria, of course, is part of the abdomen, and the idea, going back to antiquity, of vapors rising up, still reflected in Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, in 1621, where he talks about windy vapors ascend up to the brain, uh, which trouble the imagination and cause fear, sorrow, dullness, heaviness, merry, many terrible conceits and chimeras. But I, as I'll show you in a second, um, throughout the Georgian period, I would say you see uh, at the same time, uh, often generally the same people, offering somatopsychic and psychosomatic explanations for the interaction between mind and stomach. That is to say, they, they're quite happy to accept that it works in both directions, almost all of them. Uh, 
for example, um, and you see, yes, as I said at the top, an amazing persistence of vapors and an era of nerves. Uh, Thomas Willis, of course, one of the founders of, of, of the kind of, in some ways, dominance of nerves in 18th century medicine, was very skeptical about vapors per se, but said as well that fermented juices would affect the mind because of the intimate communication and mutual dependence, that's to say in both directions, between the spleen and the nerves. Uh, that violent passions of the mind would affect the spleen via the animal spirits in the nerves, so it would go in both directions. Thomas Sydenham, his contemporary, wrote that hypochondria was caused by irregular motions of the animal spirits, which led to great commotions of mind and to stomach disorders. Uh, Richard Blackmore, uh, about a generation later in the 1620s, in his treatise on the spleen and vapors, or hypochondriacal and hysterical affections, was very keen to say it was nothing to do with the spleen, but the, that hypochondriacal emotional and mental symptoms were caused by a ferment in the viscera. Um, but at the same time, he said that disturbances in the nerves caused by sudden or violent impressions, unwelcome news, sad accidents, a sudden outcry or the very opening of a door or a disagreeable or frightful idea presented to the fancy or imagination might result in convulsive spasms and contractions in any bowel. So again, it goes in both directions for Blackmore. Uh, George Taney, who I said at the beginning, is widely believed by people who haven't read him properly, but it gets quoted an awful lot by people who haven't read him properly. Um, as, the, as an origin in the way of psychological medicine, talks almost exclusively about his bowels. Um, in his essay on regimen, which went into many editions, um, he writes that all distempers begin first at the stomach or bowels, all, then ascend to the head, and that he that would have a clear head must have a clean stomach. This rhetoric of clean and dirty is very interesting. You get a lot, I mean, it's the root of a lot of the uh, kind of interesting enemas and things like that. Uh, the neglect of which is the cause why we see so many hypochondriacal, melancholy, and vaporish gentlemen. His model is essentially, of course, hydraulic. It's all about obstructions. The nerves are fitted in really to a kind of Borjavian kind of hydraulic model. He talks about bad, sharp, thick, and viscid juices that are attended with weak and relaxed nerves. And finally, somebody, another Scottish doctor who uh, did an awful lot to bring the focus really onto nerves in lots of ways, Robert White, and his observations on the nature, causes, and cure of those disorders, commonly called nervous, hypochondriac, or hysteric, wrote that a disordered, a disordered state of the stomach and intestines with wind or noxious humors, so basically vapors, uh, lodging in them, will sometimes so affect the brain as to deprive, them, deprive people of their reason. And that obstructions in the stomach may often be the cause of low spirits. So on the other hand, melancholy or long-continued grief frequently gives rise to hypochondriac and hysteric complaints and sometimes to obstructions in those viscera. So really you see an amazing level of continuity, I would say, going back at least to um, Thomas Willis, of being able to combine the language of nerves with the language of vapors without really worrying about it too much. And the real break just uh, comes in the 1820s, 1830s with uh, the impact of Paris medicine. Um, so that's why for, this is how you can, for example, explain this image here. Uh, this is an image uh, from George Cruikshank on indigestion. And those are, of course, blue devils he's being attacked by there. That's to say they're symbol of symbolize what we might call depression now. Uh, that the, um, it was uh, these, the close association between mental symptoms and physical discomfort in the stomach is underlined, I think, in this picture. And there are many, many, many other examples that I could give that are just like that. 
So if that's the case, if there are all these connections between the um, body and the mind, between the stomach and the mind, that makes it very easy then to incorporate the stomach into um, social anxieties um, and social conceits, cultural conceit. So it becomes a very common idea, for example, in the 18th century that a bad stomach is a sign of a superior mind. Um, Richard Blackmore already mentioned him before in his treatise of the spleen writes that people with digestive problems excel their neighbors in cogitation and all intellectual endowments because their juices retained acidity and stimulated animal spirits of the nerves to create a greater plenty of clear, surprising, and beautiful ideas. Uh, likewise, Tissot, uh, from Lausanne doctor, very influential Lausanne doctor, um, who's translated very early into English and gets quoted an awful lot by British physicians, in his essay on the diseases incident to literary and sedentary persons, suggests that good digestion is only enjoyed by idiots and that men really need, men, of course, really need to have bowels of iron to, have, to really go into an intellectual life. Um, at this stage, one could mention, for example, the modern interest in things like gluten intolerance, but maybe I'll leave that for the end in questions and you can talk a bit about that. So, so the question is then, really, is it, a, is it a matter of bad digestion somehow being naturally congenitally connected to a superior mind, or does, is thinking bad for the stomach? Is, it, is that the problem? Uh, one famous example of this um, is David Hume, another Scotsman, again by coincidence. Uh, when he was a young man, he'd taken up a very intensive course of study and found that he felt ill. He had, had what he called, well, I'll go into it. Um, he wrote himself, um, at last, about April 1730, when I was 19 years of age, a symptom which I had noticed a little from the beginning increased considerably so that it was no uneasiness. The novelty of it made me ask advice. It was what they call ptialism or wateriness of the mouth. Upon my mentioning it to my physician, he told me I was now a brother, for I had fairly got a disease of the learned. And it's quite clear from Hume's description, and his, he wrote a letter probably to George Cheney. It's not clear if it was ever sent, but it was definitely to Cheney. There's a long debate about this one letter. But it, it was quite clear to Hume that he'd made himself ill and given himself stomach complaints <laughs> By, by reading too many books. And he said he was going to give up the life of, the, of an intellectual, and he went to Bristol to try to become um, a merchant. Uh, there are similar remarks made in a, a very interesting book from the 1830s by the Irish physician and historian Richard Robert Madden called The Infirmities of Genius, really one of the first books um, to set out a theory of kind of mad genius as a kind of physical problem. And he is obsessed with Alexander Pope. He wrote a great length. That all, even though nothing, the Pope never really talked about his stomach compared to all his other physical problems. It really was all about the stomach. He wrote that none of his biographies indeed allude to his having suffered from indigestion. And it is even possible that he might not himself have been aware of the nature of those anomalous symptoms. But dyspepsia mimicked the form of every other malady. Those symptoms of giddiness, languor, dejection, palpitation of the heart, constant heart uh, headache, dimness of sight, occasional failure of mental powers, exhaustion of nervous energy, depriving the body of vital heat, and the diminution of muscular strength, or as far as he was concerned, down to the stomach. 
And I would say, particularly again after 1800, you get more to a shift of this idea that it's intense thought. It's, there's supposed to be mental, it's mental strain that affects the stomach, um, always via the nervous system. So Trotter again talks about how intense thought could affect the guts, again, to reduce the philosopher to an idiot. Um, others, however, for Bernardino Ramazzini, you know, the, really the, in many ways the founder of um, occupational medicine, writing around 1700, he gets quoted endlessly. And he has a whole section at the end of his book about the diseases uh, of, um, of, the, of, le- of intellectuals. He also says that nobody in their right mind will become an intellectual for anything but money. <laughs> but it's a disgusting idea. Um, but he, his, one of his main arguments is that people make themselves ill with their stomach just by bending over, a, bending over like that all the time. And that's a theory that gets quoted an awful lot as well. The other question is, of course, what kind of reading is bad for the guts? There's a huge debate about whether... Uh, novels or serious reading is worse. You know, the, you know. There are, some people say it's both. It's reading. In, reading in general is bad for the for the in, for the digestion. Uh, John Armstrong's, I think, or I think personally, a terrible poem, "The Art of Preserving Health." You'll see if you agree. From 1764, has very specific views about what kind of reading would be good for health and what bad. He wrote that the strong-built pedant who both night and day feeds on the courses fair the schools bestow, should be careful. He should amuse but not fatigue his mind, leaving the German folios alone. So no serious philosophy or anything like that. Just in contrast, the leisurely reading around of, loud of Homer and Demosthenes would cause quick vibrations through the bowels. It doesn't sound that great, but it's meant to be good. The restless blood which in unactive days would loiter else through unelastic tubes. I can't think of a less poetic phrase than unelastic <laughs> tubes. In any case, this contrast between German folios, so um, pretentious, scholarly, it's like you know, for, for pathetic scribblers in universities and Royal College of, of Physicians, contrasting that with the leisurely, gentlemanly pursuit of the classics is, is very common. On the other hand, though, you do have plenty of people who suggest that serious reading is okay, that especially later on, that reading history and natural history, that's a good thing, but novels are a bit too racy and they overstimulate the nerves and therefore bad for the, the stomach themselves. Uh, it won't be a big surprise, perhaps, to realize that uh, women are particularly vulnerable to this problem, um, even though, of course, they're systematically excluded from um, serious education. Uh, the whole debate about the blue stocking phenomena, uh, phenomenon in the late 18th century, mid to eight, late 18th century, is obsessed with their stomachs. Uh, the blue stockings uh, write to each other, people like Hester Chapone and so forth, write to each other all the time about the dangers, apparent dangers of reading for their bowels, for their stomachs. And their medical critics write at length about that. This is still being echoed. Uh, in fact, more than Echo, becomes stronger after 1800. Thomas Beddoes, for example, in his um, quite well-known <coughs> three-volume book on regimen, mostly Hygieia, writes, For the evils of indigestion, women are indebted to their wretched education. Likewise, Congreve's medical casket or pocket manual for the dyspeptic and nervous in 1836 suggests that constipation, I don't, I don't know where you picked this idea up, but constipation at girls' seminaries and boarding schools was because girls between 12 and 16 go for days with confined bowels. That's to say, they don't go to the lavatory. It also writes to them for the dangers of reading the books. Um, it's not just individual vices and virtues that get connected to stomach complaints and the debate about whether or not they're kind of glamorous and fashionable or really um, malign. 
Uh, Britishness, as a, the vices and virtues of Britishness at a time when specifically British rather than English, Scottish and so forth, uh, virtues are being, vices are being uh, foregrounded in many ways for the first time um, is a constant factor here. You've got, this is John Bull, and of course John Bull is always presented as a, as a fat man, as a stout, healthy, stout man. And that's uh, not a coincidence. Of course, he also has gout. The connection between uh, fashionable stomach diseases and gout is uh, very clear in this picture and, and dozens and dozens of other ones. Um, the idea, of course, that the English are, in particular, are stout and healthy, reflected in William Hogarth's famous painting, The Gates of Calais, or The Roast Beef of Old England, which I don't know how well you know this, has a kind of probably... Uh, Scottish, probably Jacobite, exile, starving wretch getting his just uh, Jacobite desserts in the corner there, apparently. Um, in any case, the roast beef of Old England is a song um, from Henry Fielding's Grub Street Opera from the 1730s. And there are various different versions of this song. Um, but one of them is here. And it's very clear that British vices, or in, in fact, in this case, especially English vices, um, of the modern day compared to their former virtues are all down to food and stomach problems. When mighty roast beef was the Englishman's food, it ennobled our brains and enriched our blood. Our soldiers were brave and our courtiers were good. But since we have learned from all vaporing France to eat their ragouts as well as to dance, carries on to suggest that our fathers of old, who were robust, stout and strong, with plump tenants, before coffee or tea and other exotic imports had ruined the national digestive system. So this idea that national corruption, national degeneration was caused by dirty foreign food was uh, very common. At the same time, you get the idea that in fact British stomach problems aren't because of modern British vices but because of modern British virtues. That it's because Britain is so fantastic that's why we have so many stomach problems. Of course, in some ways, you already get this in George Cheney's English malady, that the English are especially nervous because they're so incredibly rich, that the British elite is so rich they can afford to make themselves ill in all these ways. And there's, there's a, I think, in some ways, quite conscious glamorization there. And that becomes, in some ways, even stronger um, as, you, as Britain prospers in all sorts of ways. Uh, James Johnson, again, in his essay on the morbid sensibility of the stomach and bowels, wrote that there is scarcely an individual in this land of liberty and, and prosperity, in this kingdom of ships, colonies, and commerce, who does not experience more or less of the English malady. So an obvious allusion to uh, Cheney, but the way he frames it is interesting. That is to say, a preternaturally irritable state of the nervous system, more or less connected or dependent on morbid sensibility of the stomach and bowels. Uh, the wealth of activity in politics, religion, commerce, literature, and the arts, as well as capitalist speculative risks, disturb the functions of the digestive organs of the British. And I think in Johnson here, um, there's something really quite important that hasn't been uh, talked about enough. Um, a lot has been made, this famous article by Roy Porter in particular, about the shift from the English malady in the 1730s, which is associated with the idle rich. It's fashionable because it's associated with people who don't have to work, who can eat too much, drink too much, you know, eat too many foreign things, drink too many foreign things. And um, the beard neurasthenia diagnosis from the mid-Victorian period, which is all about, you know, it's not the English malady, it's the American disease, it's because of capitalism, it's because of 
um, working too hard and the stresses of modern urban life. And that's a, it's definitely a very important um, contrast. But I would argue essentially that pretty much all of neurasthenia is already in Johnson and several of his British contemporaries from the 1830s. Um, and it still has a touch of the fashionability about it. It's not really glamorous anymore, but it's associated with, with these British virtues. The Britain is so great, and that's why we have bad stomachs. And it's because we work, to, we work too hard. So, you know, it's because banks go bust. Yeah, it's amazing how little it's changed in some ways. Just to go through some of the things that stand out for me about all of this. Um, I would say, that, yes, that fashionable stomach diseases, there's certainly a huge debate throughout the Georgian period that associates stomach diseases with... Uh, glamour of various kinds, with sensitivity, with hard work, with um, not working. But it's always contested. There's always an undercurrent of real misery, real suffering. People have been looking at an awful lot of diaries and correspondence to get an idea not only of medical views, but of, the, of ideas about the body and, and disease and society and the culture more generally. And there it is always contested, going backwards and forwards between um, glamour and... Um, Straightforward misery, like in the, the Carlyle quote that I had at the beginning. Uh, secondly, is, is I'm constantly struck while going through all of those um, sources, the extent to which digestion is central to pretty much all ideas of selfhood, uh, at least as much as the brain. When they talk about them, themselves, their kind of, the inner selves, they're generally talking about digestion much more often than the brain. Um, thirdly, uh, the, it's quite clear to me that the mind-stomach nexus, so to speak, the it goes in both directions. That is, is people in general, lay observers and doctors, almost all acknowledge um, that emotional and mental stress can cause stomach complaints and that stomach complaints can cause, quite, in some ways, quite logically, mental and emotional problems. Um, and finally, I'll just talk a little bit, perhaps, about the resonance of all of this today. Um, of course, the executive ulcer, as I mentioned before, uh, seems to have disappeared with... Uh, the uh, discovery of various bacteria related to ulcers and whatnot. Um, various things about gluten intolerance are all sorts of ways in which morals and work and society are connected with quote unquote fashionable stomach conditions today. If you think about the debate about anorexia, about obesity, and about the role of self control in all of that, um, I think the, the parallels with the Georgian period are extremely, um, extremely clear. Um, and that is to say, you see a constant interaction of society, culture, politics, and biology. Um, in some ways, you could compare it to uh, what Ian Hacking has called feedback loops in psychiatry, which is to say that um, you get real, real symptoms um, get uh, interpreted by doctors, and then they get um, picked up in the general public and then replicated, for, so doctors see more of it, and so forth. So there's a constant uh, interaction there, and uh, so... I'd be a plea not to just look at these uh, fashionable, fashionable stomach uh, complaints today in purely somatic terms, which is um, a very common approach. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I've run out eight minutes too early. Thank you very much. <laughs>